From HerbMentor.com, this is Herb Mentor Radio. You are listening to Herb Mentor Radio and HerbMentor.com. I'm John Gallagher. My guest today is Bevan Clare. Bevan is a clinical herbalist and nutritionist. She is clinical division chair of the Masters of Science in Herbal Medicine program at Thai Sophia Institute in Laurel, Maryland. Bevan has studied herbal medicine around the world and blends her knowledge of the traditional uses of plants with modern science and contemporary healthcare strategies. Bevan also serves on faculty at the Massachusetts College of Pharmacy, co-director for the Herbal Clinic for All, on the board for United Plant Savers, and lectures nationally. Also, Bevan is a professional member and vice president of the American Herbalist Guild. You can visit her at bevanclair.com and ti.edu. That's T-A-I.edu. Bevan, welcome. Thank you, John. You know, you're a busy woman. <laughs> I am a busy woman. <laughs> so, so I really appreciate you being here. Wow, that's a, that's a lot going on. Um, I, I guess I forgot to mention your most important role, and that's, of course, mom, correct? That is correct. <laughs> Definitely a mom. I have to get that in because that's probably the most important of all of those, um, especially as an herbalist too, right? Um, so, Bevan, I want to focus on uh, today on a lot of questions submitted by HerbMentor.com members. Um, since we have an herbal clinician on the line, which doesn't happen every day, um, but first, um, we'd love to get to know you a bit because on HerbMentor.com, uh, lots of folks um, either starting out or they've been on their learning journey a bit now, and it's always inspiring to kind of you know hear ideas of where people have learned and all. So, how did you first get started in using herbs? It's always hard to say mm. with that question. I think, you know, I, I I was always interested in nature. I mean, even as a child, I grew up in the country in New Hampshire. And so I was out in the forest a lot looking at plants. But it wasn't until my teenage years where I really started getting interested in using them more medicinally and therapeutically. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would say it was a, very much a teenage thing. And that became pretty serious after that. Uh, so I wanted it to be a viable profession. And that was an interesting thing because at the time, most of the role models that I had that were clinical herbalists were, uh, they'd come to that by being very, you know, kind of broken, poor and struggling for a long time, having mm-hmm. a good time meanwhile. But I thought, you know, is that really necessary? Like, do I have to, <laughs> do I have to um, live in a tent for 10 years and not have a car and <laughs> to be able to do this? So a lot of it was trying to kind of create a different way of, um, you know, walking this profession, but still in a good way and still connected to the earth, just maybe making sure that it could be a, a real and viable profession uh, in the future. And that's really changed since I've been part of it. Did you go to schools to learn or did you start with like books or? I started with books and I also started by doing things like Rosemary's Correspondence Course. Oh, and nice. um, yeah, and I went to Rosemary's program. I also did Seven Songs program and so, uh, you know, I've, I've certainly had a lot of teachers over the years as well as I've uh, done a lot of conventional education also. So kind of blending the two. And as you mentioned in the introduction, I've spent a lot of the time out of the country. So learning about herbs around the world has been a real focus for me. Well, let's let's talk about that. Um, give me what like how. how... Where did you go and how did you learn or set things up? Because this is great because, you know, the names you mentioned, like Seven Song and Rosemary, people on Herbenter have um, heard and they know they have programs and go to. So it's really fabulous to say, I went to these programs and then, you know, this is all the things that you're doing now. And and I think it gives a lot of people um, some, you know, some hope and guidance in a way to to things that they can make happen if they put their minds to it and, you know, and all. Um, But tell us about about something that you did out of the country, like um, that really affected you. Well, I've always traveled over the years and, and travel has been a great source of, of joy for me just to experience different cultures and foods and way of life. So most of my travel has been in the developing world. Mm-hmm. And I had a, a experience which was really profound for me. I had been learning about herbal medicine for a while. And uh, and so I was I was I already considered myself an herbalist um, and I was in Southeast Asia and at that time, I was in kind of a remote area of, uh, of Myanmar or Burma, as you might know it. And mm-hmm. when I was there, people, I mean, it's not a place where there's a lot of tourists and there's very, it's very difficult to get there. At the time, I had a lot more time than money. So if someone said, well, it's 25 cents for a, you know, 
36 hour bus ride, I'd be like, great, I can go somewhere that far away for 25 cents. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I would just kind of hop in the bus and go somewhere. So I was in this remote area and um, it was a time when I spent about a year and a half, um, almost two years abroad. And it was the very beginning of this trip. So I was walking through this little village in a very remote place and I didn't realize it until I had a little more experience in Southeast Asia. But when you get really into really remote places and you're clearly a Westerner, it's basically assumed that you're a medical professional that's, mm -hmm. um, that's there to help. And a, a woman came up to me with a, um, a little child, maybe about um, two or two and a half. And she was, and the child was clearly ill. I mean, she was holding her and she was either sleeping or passed out. Um, and, asked me, I don't, it wasn't in English really, but asked me if I was a doctor and she did know the word doctor and um, was clearly asking me for my help. And, you know, I immediately was just, I just said, you know, I'm so sorry, I'm not a doctor. And I felt so badly and, and I kind of turned to, to leave. And then I thought about it and said, you know, well, I could probably do something that could help this child. Mm. So, so I did, you know, and it was great. I went to the local market and recognized most of the plants. No, that's not true. I recognized enough of the plants there that I was very comfortable making medicine. And there's things like, you know, fresh chamomile and mint and garlic, ginger, fresh turmeric, and a lot of herbs wow. that, that most people would rec recognize. I mean, they're Asian plants. Mm -hmm. And so we made some medicines for this child who had a really intense um, abscess that, that was had gone systemic. So she had, um, uh, you know, septicemia essentially. And we just worked with her and she was able to get better. But the, the part with that, that really impacted me was just the community there. I mean, I, you know, all of the people were very interested in what I was doing and I loved it that I was able to use their medicines. And for me, what I took away was that, um, herbal medicines can really work in these situations. And over the years in the developing world, I've been able to observe people using plants for things that if it was here, we should go to the hospital. I mean, there, there's still no doubt that in a lot of these urgent care situations that I use plants in, that anyone that had access to a, a you know proper medical facility should use it. But, um, but that wasn't an option. So the best choice was herbs. And um, and they worked. I mean, and that's, it, it just changed the way that I thought about plants as these, you know, kind of nurturing tools that you can use to help heal people from chronic disease and help them just stay well and be part of a healthy lifestyle. And I realized like these are, these are powerful medicines. Um, and that's why I went and, and uh, did my master's work in infectious disease, because I, I'm just fascinated by the place where plants and uh infectious disease kind of come together yes and i took your class at the at the conference and i even taped it so hopefully we'll get that up on herb mentor uh you did a class on infections and then um, there um so um so so did that lead you um then to, to do more clinical work than when you came back to the states and then that led to your like your work running the clinic at ty sophia or how did that because because that's something that a life it's kind of a little rare um, type of thing for someone to experience in this country, like being able to, for example, to be a student in, in your clinic would be pretty cool. And, um, and I hear that a lot around there. So um, do you see more of that happening in this country with the clinics happening or, you know, that kind of thing or did that? Well, I think people are looking for a clinical education mm -hmm. and it's, it's a tricky thing to put together and Thai Sophia is unique in that it's a you know an accredited school mm -hmm. which means that you know it's a long program and people can get financial aid and so on um, otherwise I think that there's a lot of great models for learning in a clinical setting that that are coming up now and and it's it's tricky because a lot of us in the, the community is very diverse. Like we, you know, as far as how to practice herbal medicine, Western herbal medicine, there really, you know, there isn't a method to do that. So it makes it so that there's different types of herbalists and there's different types of practice. And I think it's harder to, to navigate sometimes for students to know, you know, to find a good fit and to know what the right, or not the right way, but the, the right way for them to practice is. 
but I, I think that there will be a, there's a lot more opportunities and they and they do increase and it's fascinating to be able to to work in a student clinic environment like that. It's something that I you know absolutely adore. That's amazing. What a great opportunity. And I, I uh, didn't find out about Thai Sophia until like after I moved away from Maryland. So I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I was in the Northwest all of a sudden. I was like, darn. <laughs> mm-hmm. So um, and then the Herbal Clinic for All is 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 that's part of the clinical experience. It's Is it a free clinic? So the Herbal Clinic for All is part of the uh, is associated with the student clinics, essentially. Mm-hmm. And it's a program that allows people to to get both cost-free consultations and um, cost-free herbal products up to, you know, we have kind of a limit. But um, but we're able to do that through, basically through private donations. So the, the program has been alive and well now for, um, I think, about four or five years. And we've been we've been able to see a lot of people in that time. So we're lucky to, to you know, to kind of be able to plug into the overall, you know, there, there's already a clinic present and, and so on. Um, and we already have a dispensary, but we just fund uh, those things that go out to, to people that are in need. So if anyone lives in the greater D.C. area, it's a good resource to know about. And if that that information for that's on the TAI website too, TAI.edu? Yeah, if, if they go to TAI.edu, uh, you can find that information. Or if you just call um, Thai Sophia Institute, you can you can find out about the Herbal Clinic for All. Great. So let's get to some questions from Urban Time because, I mean, really, I, I, I would love to – I could just sit here and, and listen to stories from your travels because that's really, really <laughs> interesting to me. Like, and I'm like, oh, let's talk about that for a while. You know, because you mentioned like, oh, everyone knows it like ginger or tumor, but we don't realize a lot of people don't know what they look like outside of their powdered forms. Or right, right. So it's like awesome that you're like we're there and harvesting and using it right for people. That's awesome. So – um, in this case, there's a, oh gosh, you know, folks who, who put in questions in, I kind of went back a couple of days later. I'm like, oh boy, there's a lot of questions here. So I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to ask, we'll, we'll get through some of them um, and uh, we'll do our best here. But always remember, um, you can always ask on the forum if there's something that you need help with. Um, okay. So uh, let's see. Linda emails in, um, wants to ask you what you're three most favorite herbs are and how you include herbs in your daily routine. Like she was wondering, do you drink like nourishing herbal infusions, herbal baths? Uh, do you uh, prefer tinctures or like where, where do you, where, what's, what are your, a few of your favorite herbs and maybe how you use them on a regular basis? So my, my favorite herbs, there's two that are pretty much always the same and one that, that changes on a whim. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. uh, the, the first would have to be garlic. It's um, it's just so fantastic. It's present. It's affordable. It's delicious. Um, it makes you smell delicious. <laughs> it's you know, it just has so many properties and it's so versatile. You find it around the world. Um, it, you know, it, it's it also can can change so much depending on what you do with it. And it's you know, it's powerful medicine for the cardiovascular system. It's um, a powerful antimicrobial and immune supporter. Um, it also has, uh, you know, a whole number of, of other activities. You know, garlic is just good for just about anything. So, so I really appreciate it. I, I feel like it's one of my, um, defenses from the, the world that we live in, mm. in many ways. And, uh, you know, as Jim Duke says, people stay a little further away sometimes if you eat a lot of garlic and you don't want to get sick. <laughs> so, um, but it, you know, but in general, think that that's and I probably everyone I work with probably roll their eyes when they hear me say say this about garlic because I probably walk around the building smelling like garlic all the time and I don't really have that consciousness that other people might not want to smell it um but I you know I just I love that plant and the other one would be yarrow I think between um the kind of mystical aspects of yarrow where it's seen as this uh, sacred plant in so many traditions. You know, yarrow makes the sticks for the I Ching in, um, oh, in Asia. Right. It's, uh, it's the plant, you know, that was used um, for Achilles in the mythology. I mean, it's a, it's a plant that's seen in so many traditions as um, being sacred and magical. Um, so I, I love that piece of it. I also love it as again you know an antimicrobial um as a as an aromatic bitter for both you know for the digestive system um i just i think it's 
a fantastic herb for all sorts of types of infections and and it works well you know, infused in water or in oil and um, so I love yarrow the third one it really just depends it depends on what what mood I'm in and what plants I've been experiencing a lot and I think that um, I probably would have to say um, for this week, <laughs> my, my third favorite, my just good old simple mint. And um, the reason why is we, we just went to Turkey um, uh, the beginning of the year. Mm. So just a, a week ago or so. And in Turkey, you know, they use so much mint in cooking and in a lot of places where I wouldn't necessarily use it. And it just gave me a whole new appreciation for it. And of course, I drink lots of mint and tea, but I, I probably take it for granted a lot of the time. And the combination of mint and also um, sumac berries were, are used a lot there. Mm-hmm. So I came wow. back with a, just a new appreciation of mint and sumac berries, um, but mint in particular. And so as far as how I use herbs on a daily basis, I drink a lot of herbal teas. And I would say beyond that, it's food. So herbal teas and food are a really common way um, for me to use herbs. Uh, you know, yesterday, for example, this would bring a lot of my favorites together that uh, we had kind of like these um, flatbreads that I made with, um, you know, some roasted vegetables and things. And it had yogurt that I put um, garlic, sumac berries and mint in, uh, kind of a turkey inspired thing and put that over the flatbreads. So for mm. me, I, you know, I make a, actually, you know, it also had fresh parsley, but uh-huh. I make a concerted effort to use fresh herbs uh, or dried herbs and in, in a kind of a therapeutic quantity. So, you know, when it's talking about a quarter teaspoon, I don't know. I mean, nutmeg's probably the only herb I use in a quarter teaspoon. <laughs> Otherwise, um, I just dump them in and I watch my two-year-old. One of the ways that he imitates mommy is cooking and he's always going into the cabinet and getting the, the herbs out and just trying to <laughs> dump massive amounts of them into his little cooking vessel. <laughs> so um, so I, I really believe in using a lot of, of plants, fresh or dried or medicinal plants uh, in cooking. But I don't necessarily, I'm not, not as likely to be using things that are, you know, purely medicinal and trying to get them to taste good in, in cooking as much as I'm um, using what I think are extremely healthful herbs that, uh, that are also delicious. Mm. And then, you know, if I need herbs for something else, like I came back with kind of a respiratory funky thing from mm-hmm. Turkey, then I'll take, you know, therapeutic teas or tinctures or capsules or powders. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big fan of herbal powders. I think that they're much more affordable and um, you get a little bit more of a sensory experience from them. And I'm, you know, I'm less likely to use tinctures probably um, because at this point I'm not making my own medicine. So I just think that they're expensive and uh, when I'm making my own medicines then I use them a lot more okay great thank you um so Renee uh, noticed that you were a nutritionist from your from your biography and um, and she's been reading a lot about how necessary fats are to our diets lately so since one must have dietary fats to metabolize soluble vitamins the hype of the last 30 years has been consuming a high carb low fat diet doesn't make much sense to her. So um, what's your take on this issue? And in particular, what fat sources should we not be without? Well, I would say I, you, as far as the long-term um, bias, you know, against fats, I, I think we, I'm, I'm a pretty big believer in being, have moderation in most things. And, um, and just having things be, as close to their natural sources as possible. So I definitely shy away from almost any dogma when it comes to food and mm-hmm. because I find that the, the dogmatic approach usually is uh, is not very moderate. So, right, right. I like um, that. Unless the dogmatic. That, that could be. <laughs> I like that term, dogmatic approach. It kind of covers a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, everybody has their, well, you must do it this way or that way, or this right, is bad. Right. Or good, or, mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I can be convinced that maraschino cherries and those rainbow colored sprinkles are probably not going to be healthy, even in um, small amounts. But if Dang. you love them, then, you know, I, I could go with it occasionally. <laughs> so, as far as fats go, um, you know, I, I think that my take is that you need a lot of fat in a diet and fats are a key piece in um, 
and just making you feel full and sustaining you. And uh, at the same time, the quality is absolutely critical. And so I would say try to get as much fat as possible intact within the food that it's in. Mm. So if that means, you know, you eating your nuts and seeds, um, eating things like avocados, um, high quality animal products. So, you know, animals that are, that are raised eating, um, corn and soy, even if it's organic corn and soy are going to have a lot more of the pro-inflammatory fat ratios mm. versus plant animals that have eaten, you know, grass and bugs and mm -hmm. twigs and leaves and stuff. And berries are going to have a very different profile. So, um, but I would say as much as you can get it intact in the in the item itself. And then beyond that, it's about how hard it is to get the oil out. So olive oil is a great oil because all you have to do is take a bunch of olives and squish them and out comes olive oil versus other oils um, where you know, if you think about something like corn oil, if you squish corn, um, <laughs> oil does not come out. So, you know, you need to use a chemical process and it denatures the the natural aspects of the of the oil when you do that. Mm -hmm. So, um so I would say definitely keep a you know, a healthy amount of fats in there, but make sure that they're of good quality and when possible within the foods that they actually came from. I guess, I guess if you squish corn you get tortillas, right? No. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> not oil. <laughs> not, not <corn. laughs> um Jasmine, uh, she's my pal from my acupuncture school I went to. How do you know? Has um has a question about Chinese herbs versus Western herbs. She's an acupuncturist. Oh, I'll just read it in her voice. I'm an acupuncturist, and I actually prefer to use herbs that are grown close to me in my garden or at least in the Pacific Northwest. But I know many acupuncturists that believe that Chinese herbs are stronger and work better because of the formulas and the way they are prepared. So being that you run an herbal clinic program at a school that is also, I mean, acupuncture school as well. <laughs> I'm sure you have some insights here. Well, we do have a Chinese herbal program mm -hmm. that is um, for acupuncturists mm -hmm. too. Okay. But it, interestingly, they're, you know, completely separate departments. Oh, okay. We have basically nothing to do with them. Mm -hmm. And, um, but we're, we would be interested in, uh, you know, chatting more. We're just there on different days and times. So the, the overall opinion about it for me is that uh, I, you know, I think we all are attracted to our own medicines and, and that when you talk about Chinese herbs versus Western herbs, the, the, the piece that's, that's not mentioned is the herbalist often. And um, so, you know, I think if you stood there on a, at a, in a store and looked on a shelf at a Western herbal product versus a Chinese herbal product, I wouldn't say that there would be much difference if they were, you know, comparable in quality and all of that. But um, but if you're working with a Chinese herbalist, Chinese herbs are probably going to be more powerful. And if you're mm -hmm. working with a Western herbalist, Western herbs are probably going to be mm -hmm. more powerful. Um, I do think that the you know the idea of these long-term formulas and some of the precision that's offer, off, offered in Chinese medicine, you know, has some great benefit. That there has been a lot of time and energy to come up with, you know, these. Um, these cohesive synergistic uh, groupings of herbs versus herbal medicine in the United States is uh, much more regional. And, um, and I think, you know, because of that, we get a lot, a greater diversity and variety in what we use and probably a stronger connection to the natural plant world. And at the same time, you know, we don't have the, uh, the knowledge of these formulas that have developed for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. So I think you're going to know, you know, what you use. And of course we use a lot of, of Chinese herbs in Western herbal medicine mm -hmm. as well. Um, so the, the last thing I'll add to that is Chinese herbs, the preparations are often a lot stronger. And some of this comes down to technique and kind of history. Some of it also comes down to finances that, you know, if if you were to use Chinese proportion, traditional Chinese proportion decoctions, um, it would cost a lot of money to keep up with that on a regular basis. And mm. it's uh, historically was something that um, wasn't quite the same in our in our current world of you know herbs that that often have quite a markup. But um, yeah, I think it's it's a very interesting discussion. Yeah. Okay. Yes. It, it, it is, and and you know even like um, well it, the acupuncture school. That's Itaya Sophia was started by J.R. Worsley, right? And 
and and uh so it's interesting because that's the the style that i studied and and i listened to him once and he was talking about herbs and he's like oh don't use chinese herbs use the herbs that grow around you and then now the school is teaching about other herbs and now western herbalism is using chinese herbs it's all this kind of (laughs) (laughs) so you say it is a discussion isn't it (laughs) well and it's tricky because you know i i would love to to I focus on the herbs that are bioregional, but, but, you know, thinking about living without cinnamon is a really hard thing to think about or ginger. (laughs) We just, you know, the pungents and aromatics that we have are just not, um, they're not the same. (laughs) So, you know, I love wild ginger and I love spice bush and, but I'm, I'm not going to give up ginger and cinnamon. Well, I know, I know Jasmine and she, um, is a, also a midwife and she Mm -hmm. specializes her acupuncture practice with, uh, with, um, more maternity and, you know, helping women through pregnancy and, 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 con- and continued care after that. And, um, and she does a lot of um, teaching about like using infusions and things like that to help th- her patients as they're going through their pregnancy with nourishing herbs and what they might need along with their acupuncture. So I think it's just oh. something some she's getting into studying more. I'm just curious. Mm. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> Now there's a uh, Malin who uh, says, uh, hello, <laughs> I would like to know what herbs would be useful to take after an appendicitis to recover from an operation for an elderly man who is on statins and takes medication for his heart, um, <clears throat> mainly for mental well-being and healing after the operation. So this probably could go for a lot of operations in general, I imagine. Hmm. Well, I, I think... Um, Malin points out something in the the last part that's really critical is uh, the the mental well-being and healing is key after a lot of types of operations. So, you know, especially things that are, are the result of um, of something that's degenerative. So, particularly in cardiovascular disease, there can there can be this period where people really get down after they they have these operations. Mm-hmm. So, I like it that um, uh, he or she is already you know thinking along those lines. I think that food is very key in these times periods. You know, you need to give the body enough nourishment to um, to to heal. And um, and so I I'm a huge fan of medicinal soups, mm-hmm. and I've been kind of refining my um, medicinal soup recipe to make it easier and uh, and so on. And the you know the current my current favorite for, for people, because I find after an operation, people also don't eat a lot. So they tend to kind of get snacky and um, Mm -hmm. it's not always the best snacks that they're using. Mm -hmm. So I really like uh, just making, as long as somebody isn't um, vegetarian or vegan, uh, chicken soup. And I use a whole chicken, like the whole thing, just plop it in a big pot of water. Um, And if it comes with the, um, like the organs uh, in a little packet. I add those too. And I would just cook the heck out of that chicken. Um, you know, if you can cook it for, you know, 25 or 30 hours, and that's great. And if you, you know, if you don't, if you aren't the type of person that sits there next to the stove for 25 or 30 hours regularly, um, I basically, you know, turn it on when I get home from work and boil it until I go to sleep at night. And um, either I'll leave it on low or I'll just actually turn it off. And then in the morning, I'll turn it on again and boil it again and then leave it. And I think as long as you're continually turning it on and boiling it for a time period before you leave it for a little while, then um, then that, that keeps it nice and, and safe. And so mm. those types of things, when you add, uh, you can, you know, once it's all cooked down, what you end up with is this broth that basically is full of protein and fat and minerals and um and you discard the the solids what's left I and mean, it doesn't look anything like a chicken <laughs> after a while um and you can drink that broth you know you can leave the fat in there and uh, it has a lot of nourishment and i also like to add herbs like astragalus mm. um and uh and ginger and whatever that person what might be helpful maybe a little bit of dandelion or burdock I mean, you don't want to get it the soup to taste unpleasant um, and then you can add some of the fresh aromatic herbs like rosemary and, and sage and thyme, um, mint, garlic uh, towards the end when you'd serve it. And then you could add, you know, add vegetables or cook rice in it or whatever you wanted to do. So um, so that was kind of a long answer to a, a short piece. But I, I think going at it with food is great. I also think that some of the kind of deep nourishing healing herbs uh, and adaptogens, things like 
Um, ashwagandha could be a really helpful herb. And I think that's a wonderful powder. And um, you could also use something like, you know, more kind of standard dandelion and burdock. And because those are all just, you know, very safe and very gentle and um, not something you have to, to worry about if you're taking statins um, or medications for their heart. Okay, that's great. Um, well, Marianne uh, noticed uh, your study on aging, on the aging, and uh, she said, would she be able to give some herbal advice for us who are aging on this site um, at 75, her husband's 78, and take no meds, and they want to rely on herbs. Uh, I read where you are older, you have to be careful not to overdo it. So what does this look like? Um, let's see, I'll add that she says that we both have a um, issues minus high blood pressure, um, um, but uh, let's see, better better than not, my mate of 57 years has prostate issues, let's see, and um, anyway, she said she had read something about the elderly need to be a little careful with herbs, and so what do we do, she says so she's curious about what how they might use herbs and what they might have to be uh, look out for to be careful with. Well, it's, it's, there's, a, there's some irony here because, you know, as I say, people should be careful with herbs when, if people are saying that you should be careful with herbs as you're elderly and it's not because of interactions and medications, um, then, you know, we're giving our elderly population more drugs than, you know, than any other aspect of our population. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so I don't think that you, you know, inherently need to be careful. It's more about what is the, uh, the vitality and overall well-being like how how much pushing and pulling can can somebody handle with herbs and you know there are herbs that are that are strictly nourishing um and gentle and kind uh and those you know herbs like chamomile and um mint and dandelion and burdock and a lot of the first herbs that you would learn about and that doesn't mean they aren't powerful because they're incredibly powerful but they come at it from a nourishing angle and then there's herbs that are all the way over to not being you know, nourishing really at all, but they are, you know, they're strong and they have profound effects on physiology. So those herbs might be things like, um, like anemone or poke, um, or baptisia mm -hmm. or plants like that. So, uh, you know, I think someone with the reserves and someone who has, you know, a strong enough constitution, even in their very elder years can use, um, plant any of those plants appropriately as, just like any of us could. Now, if someone feels like they are um, a little more fragile and they find that they react to things or they need to be a little more careful about what they're doing, then I would stick with the herbs that are more gentle. And a good way to do that may be even to consult books that look at um, look at children in herbal medicine because mm. they oh. would be herbs that would also be um, more gentle right. and uh, less less strong for people. So I, but I don't think that necessarily, you know, if you're older, you have to be careful to not overdo it with herbs. I, I think that that's, um, that's just a generalization and, you know, and what does older mean? I mean, there right. are people, I see people in the clinic that are, that are older, that are like 40. And then mm -hmm. there's people that haven't got to being older yet and they're, you know, in their eighties. Right, right. It just really depends on, on the person and, and who they are. But, uh, and the other thing I'll say to that is that herbs used in a whole whole form, so if you're using um, especially teas and foods, um, herbs, you can pretty much use herbs pretty freely. It's when you start getting to capsules or concentrated extracts or um, concentrated tinctures, you have to be a little more careful because you're taking things kind of outside what your body um would have its natural shutoffs for mm -hmm. like you can only drink so much herbal tea um especially if it doesn't taste good like if it has a lot of alkaloids and it's very strong you can't usually drink balance of the stuff um but if it's capsulated then you, then you definitely can so it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it when you need it it just means that um that you should be aware of uh the the strength of it right exactly okay well thanks thanks for that that's really great information um <clears throat> okay so Diane so hello, Bevan. Thanks for taking on this big test for big task of answering questions. So she's had a uh, severe itching on her lower legs for at least five years now, and she believes it started as a poison ivy scrape on some skin graft tissue on her lower leg. Um, 
because the skin is thin there, she couldn't feel it and ignored it. And a week later, it started itching. And it's been itching ever since. Um, it's very intense. Let's see. And um, let's see. Uh, and it went away once for about a year after uh, being on uh, prednisone, which is interesting. She also tried essential oils, uh, St. John's wort, um, um, let's see, jewelweed, uh, um, tried blood cleansing herbs like uh, padarco and others. And so she's wondering if you have any suggestions. She said she may resort to a prescription of Elidel, Elidel which suppresses body immune system. But... Um, but itching too long causes hives in other places of the body. And she's, she's very tired of being itchy, so she wants to know if you have any any help. Sounds That, that sounds rough, so I hope there's something. It sounds really, really I'm, frustrating. I'm sorry, yeah. Diane. <laughs> I know. Oh, wow. It reminds me of um, you know, women that get pups in uh, in pregnancy, which is – I'm glad nobody's asking a question about that because that can be really, really difficult and is similar for um, – this intense itching. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, I had a few thoughts. It's This is not something that I've seen specifically before. But, um, you know, I think that some of the things that she try, has tried make a lot of sense. Uh, I think St. John's Wort, when she says it helps some, I would love to explore that more and see how she's using it. So whether she's using like a strong uh, oil infusion of it mm -hmm. or if she's taking the St. John's Wort internally mm -hmm. or using a liniment topically – I think that all of those different ways could be worth exploring um, locally. Uh, I think the other thing that could be helpful locally is um, something like licorice, and um, you know, just as a as a nice anti-inflammatory and soother. And you know, those things are also helpful in uh, some of the post-herpetic neuralgias that people get. If you look into that, in um, meaning like when people get shingles, after shingles go away, there's often this of nerve irritation or heightened nerve sensitivity that um, and, and some people can develop these neuralgias that can be very uncomfortable. So the licorice and St. John's wort are two herbs that are very helpful in those situations and I think worth checking out here because it could be a similar mechanism. I know it's not viral, um, but it could definitely be it could definitely be something where her her nervous system is kind of mm -hmm. always um, on the rise. And along with that, I think looking at systemic nervous system tonics could be key to kind of downregulate a, um, an oversensitive nervous system. So I would think about uh, doing things like skull cap or, um, mm. uh, you know, skull, skull cap would probably be one of my favorites, maybe a little bit of valerian or motherwort or um, whatever really occurred to her as something that would be a long-term nervous system tonic. And then um, milky oats, if she can get milky mm -hmm. oats. As, milky as like oats a decoction nice. infusion with the milky oats or a tincture? Um, I would say a decoction or a tincture. Right. Uh, and uh, not oat straw as much as the actual milky oats. Okay. And that that would be just kind of good food for her nervous system. And and the last thing I think is, is chamomile could be worth mm. trying out just because it is such a nice anti-inflammatory, uh, even topically on the skin and internally. So... Uh, it might be interesting to try a week of strong chamomile infusions and um, making that and drinking some of it and applying some of that topically and seeing just how that works. Um, so I hope I, I hope Diane has some luck and if she if she does find anything, it'll be great to hear back. That that's really interesting. Uh, I you know you often don't think of like a, a more overactive or whatever like nervous system. They always use that. I always think of that like maybe with immune system, but and then trying to nourish the, the nervous system. So that's, mm. and that's, that's really cool. Um, so yeah, I like the milky oats idea. So. <laughs> I just like oats. So. <laughs> oh yeah, that was for anything. <laughs> so, um, let's see here. Uh, Colleen is hardly allergic to mouse feces, uh, chemical dust. And that, uh, that, so she she quotes she put she calls it wonderful black mold and mildew. So her uh, house gets contaminated every winter with each of these, um, and and the rains and slush cause mildew and every tiny crack. And the chemicals used to salt and spray our roads gets tracked in the house. And um, so she's really wondering what if any preventative combination of herbals can I figure out to either apply or ingest over the winter to help with this? Uh, she gets swollen eyes, prickly skin, uh, swellings, uh, uh, sore throat. Um, 
So she doesn't want to use any histamines or epipens. And so wondering if there's a decoction or cream or something. <laughs> so what do you say? Mm. Well, that sounds really frustrating. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think obviously uh, trying to avoid all those things would be ideal, but it's, it sounds like she's explored that. Mm -hmm. So I'll just assume that um, this is an inevitable situation. Sometimes and, it is like where I live in the Northwest, try not to get mold in your house in the winter, you know, right somewhere. Absolutely. No, I can, and I, I can definitely understand that we had, we had mice earlier this year and uh, the first time ever, but I think it has to do with having a toddler somehow mm -hmm. <laughs> this food around. <laughs> and uh, we went back and forth about how to fix the mice uh, for a long time. So I know how difficult it can be. Well, you know, with these, these types of questions, the, the stock answer is always, you know, to work with a clinician and talk to somebody so they can get to know you better. But there are some herbs that I certainly would consider. And um, they are a little bit of a go-to um, uh, hypersensitivity formula that I look at. So in all, you know, in, in all, any type of um, allergy. And so the, the herbs that I generally put in there are, um, Scutellaria bicolensis, so the bicol skullcap, not the um, western skullcap. But the hmm. Scutellaria bicolensis has a lot of um, anti-inflammatory effects and can be really helpful in allergies. Another herb is um, is Romania. So I use um, cooked Romania, in, which is also a nice anti-inflammatory and um, kind of a good blood builder. So there's a Chinese herb uh, that we're referencing there. Uh, another herb I put in there is licorice. As, again, as an excellent antihistamine and um, anti-inflammatory that can be helpful in this situation. And uh, the last thing is eyebright or euphrasia, which um, if you're using eyebright, you want to make sure that it's um, cultivated or organically cultivated and not um, from the wild because it is a it is a plant that is often in short supply out there mm -hmm. and is on the United Plant Savers um, at risk list. So, the, you know, I, I often would put equal equal amounts of those as a tincture together and use that as needed. And I've seen some pretty good luck uh, for, for people using that. Okay, great. Um, let's see, Charmaine has some questions on the use of tinctures. She's currently making tinctures and using vodka, 43% uh, volume alcohol, to steep fresh herbs in. Is this okay? She should try something stronger. And then our second question is, in treating health issues with tinctures, how many tinctures can be taken at one time? Great questions. Yeah, they are good questions. Well, I think with medicine making, it, the, the most important thing is that you're making medicines. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> you, know, you could get really precise. And I could tell you, you know, that, oh, you should be using certified organic grape alcohol from southern France or something like that. And, you know, that would, but it would mean that most people couldn't make medicines. So I think that um, vodka is a great substance to use medicines in. If you're using fresh herbs in vodka, there's a few things to consider. So if they're really juicy herbs, you and you're making them very strong, it's actually possible to make them so that the vodka isn't even strong enough to preserve them. So you need about 10% alcohol to preserve them. So if you're making a tincture that um, is like it, you know, in the jar, when you make it, ends up being like 80% herbs and 20% alcohol. It's just not going to be enough to actually keep it um, keep it preserved. At the same time, if they're more leafy, dry um, dry herbs, so you're you know using. I know I know they're fresh herbs, but if they're things more like rosemary or something, then uh, then that's going to be fine. I think that in a, in the end, you would just need to probably take more of them. So that if you're using them for yourself, then Go for it and just take a little bit more of them. And you may want to get some grain alcohol at some point and use that for when you're um, trying to extract particularly fresh herbs that have a resin content or herbs that are really, um, you know, really good in that in that alcohol. So uh, one of the excellent references that I always turn to for this is on Michael Moore's website on the Southwest School of Botanical Medicine. Mm -hmm. It's um, www.swsbm dot com there's um herb manuals that were written by michael moore and there's the um uh herbal materia medica and that kind of goes through just about every herb out there and what percentage of alcohol and ratios and all of that that would be ideal to use so you may want to um take a look at that and just 
get an idea when you could use those stronger alcohols. But the, the most important thing is that it's great you're making medicines. Mm-hmm. The second question, how many tinctures can be taken at one time? Well, you know, everybody's going to have their own answer for that. But I, I think that it's, you, know, you don't need to use a lot of herbs. And in fact, you know, a, a, a great herbalist can, can work with just about everything by knowing how to use about 30 herbs really well. So, you know, remember that each herb has all sorts of different actions and you also want to make sure you have enough of each herb. So, you know, we do combine herbs because of their synergistic properties. And that's, um, you know, where, where I practice or in where I supervise, we always use combinations of plants or almost always use combinations of plants in formulas mm-hmm. um, just because that's kind of the tradition of herbal medicine. And uh, so for me, I tend to use, if I'm using a tincture, I'm blending them together into a formula and there's usually an odd number um, and, uh, and they are, you know, I'm using like five or seven herbs, but the odd number is just my own personal quirk. (laughs) Um, But we, but I'm definitely combining them. I'm, I'm not using separate herbs in separate bottles. It's one bottle and they're taking, you know, a teaspoon so many times a day or a tablespoon or mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. You're making them separately and then combining them, formulating. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, great. Okay. Um, Tara, would like to wonder if you could talk about herbs that would be supportive to the adrenal glands and how would the herbs you suggest best be used? Well, there's a few herbs that I would think of that would be the most helpful for the adrenal glands. You know, and I would say even more broad because, you know, I'm, it, you can't really isolate an adrenal gland as much as um, use herbs that are um, the, I, li- I like the, ta- the term that Simon Mills uses, the neurotropho restoratives. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, nerve restoratives, basically. Uh, the herbs that I would think of most specifically, the first one is licorice by far. Mm. And licorice has that um, effect on the adrenal glands specifically that is um, is protective and helpful. And um, and how I would use licorice is preferably in a tea, but it could also be used as a powder. Um, you could make nut butter balls or just put the powder in your smoothie or um, in your oatmeal or just um, mix it into some kind of liquid and toss it back. Um and you know, you could also make tea out of licorice. And, uh, you know, I've found a lot of people don't like licorice tea very much, but I've um, found adding some dried apricots to it works really well and makes it taste, uh, you know, it, the, the sweet chloringness of apricot seems to cover over the sweet chloringness of mm-hmm. licorice and they go together well. Um, and then the other would be those milky oats that we already mentioned. I, mm. I just, I think that you can hardly beat them for the nervous system and how I would use them would be, uh, a, a decoction of the fresh, um, or the dried milky seeds. And, uh, and you could also use a tincture of the, of the fresh milky seeds. Um, those would be my favorite two herbs for the adrenal glands. Okay. Thank you. Um, how about, uh, you know, just on, on another, well, I, I sometimes I hear about like for adrenals, people like drinking nettle infusions and all of you, mm. you like that too or because that's yeah, just a, my own side note because i I, I often think of nettles you know <laughs> well i love nettles and i think that they you know they come even in a much more broad way of doing this that they mm. you know that they are just overall nourishing to the body and uh and they give people more energy mm. i mean you know and i think that that's helpful for the adrenal glands and the um i'd also think about things like like ashwagandha um and uh, things like holy basil or Tulsi. Oh. And there's so many different things yeah, right. that are that are helpful. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure it was okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think nettles is okay for everything. I know. <laughs> I just, every question you ask me, I could just say nettles. It's like, nettles. It's like the nettles. joke The joke my son always says. Like He's, he's like, whenever he asks me a question, all I ever say is, I just put a little tea tree oil in it. <laughs> <laughs> He'll be fine. Dad, I cut my finger off. I just put a little tea tree <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, Jamie wants to know if you could uh, recommend three herbal concoctions. I don't know why specifically three, but three herbal concoctions. It could be two, you know, uh, remedies <laughs> to have on hand in the event of a nationwide flu epidemic and anything help in the event of H1N1 or H1N5, which is, I guess, a new one, uh, virus outbreak. You know, so I guess antiviral uh-huh. concoctions, I guess she's asking for. 
Yeah, so the the three that I would think of would be garlic, garlic, and garlic. Um, garlic one of the reasons garlic. for that is uh, um, <laughs> garlic. What was the third one? I, <laughs> G-A. No. Um, the, the issue with recommending a lot of things in a nationwide um, flu epidemic, because I, you know, I do this with the medical community too. And I'm cautious because if you say some of our great medicinal plants, like, you know, oh, OSHA would be fabulous or something. Um, you know, we, we have enough of a supply of OSHA to treat like what, like a couple thousand people in the population and that's it. Um, there's not very many plants that we have enough of. And, uh, you know, I, I really like to think of the the health of that ecosystem too, when we talk about flu remedies. So, Mm -hmm. uh, garlic is, there's a lot of garlic out there and it is, um, profoundly antiviral and one of the reasons why it's so antiviral in its fresh um most as as raw as you can get it form is that uh, when you eat garlic it it's exuded out of um your pores but also out of your lungs and uh, intensely exuded out of your lungs it's not like your it's not your mouth smelling of garlic it's actually you know you're breathing it out of your lungs and that is how the influenza virus enters your body is through your respiratory system. So, you know, you're, you're really like breathing out of this um, antiviral. And on top of that, if you absolutely reek of garlic, as I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, and there is a, a flu outbreak, then, then you're less likely to catch it because, you know, there'll be a wider barrier around you of other human beings. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, those are, that's the first thing I would really think of. You know, the, the next thing is that in, there's a difference between the everyday flu that people get um, where we are looking to kind of um, support and increase the power of the immune system and something like these uh, epidemics of the novel influenza viruses where you're looking at um, you're looking at something that that creates a profound amount of inflammation in healthy individuals. So a lot of what we want to do is actually more um, down-regulate some of that inflammation. And you would do that with um, things like healthy fats and um, herbs that we know are anti-inflammatory, things like turmeric. Um, it, there's so many things, and calendula, chamomile, um, yarrow, uh, you know, elderberries, bicol skullcap. I mean, a lot of those plants those are going to be the most helpful things. And then, you know, the, the bigger, the bigger herbs, things like walnuts and pomegranates and blueberries, and those are all also going to downregulate inflammatory pathways or, and are going to be, you know, viable ways to make sure that people don't have that, um, the, the sharp inflammatory increase that ends up uh, causing all the harm in these situations. So you know, there's a lot more complicated answers that I could get into, but um, but that would be where I'd start. Okay, great. Um, so Victoria says there's been a lot of discussion on herb mentor regarding gluten intolerance and its effects. Um, so I'd love to hear any ideas, suggestions you have on rebuilding digestive system health once gluten has been removed from the diet. Okay. Yeah, there's there's a lot of things we can do. There it is. It's a great question. So I would. I think that we've got some fantastic things in, for the for the GI. So some of my favorite plants that I would look to is I would look um, at my demulsants first. So things like um, you know organically harvested slippery elm mm. to make sure that it's not something that's threatened. Um, mm. I would look at marshmallow uh, root, particularly in powder or or as a tea. Um, if you are somebody who uses comfrey internally, I think that the comfrey root, uh, could be used internally for a little while for helping to kind of rebuild that digestive lining. Um, I also love some of the anti-inflammatories that my, my, probably my favorite digestive anti-inflammatories would be, uh, um, wild yam, um, diascorea velosa using, um, chamomile. I think we, we think of chamomile for the nervous system, but it is just such a wonderful, gut soothing herb and mm. so um chamomile and and i also think a lot about philopendula um philopendula amaria meadowsweet so those those herbs are really helpful for mitigating kind of di- long-term inflammation in the gut and i think if you're if you make a tea then you, you know you can also add something that has a little bit more stringency to it 
like uh, a little bit of ladies mantle or um, nettles and drinking those regularly. And then people often look to a diet that's more digestible. So um, relies more on uh, certain types of cooked foods and so on, but that, that gets all um, controversial with the raw foodists and everybody's got their own things. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but I do often encourage people to do a lot more like soups and stews in particular when they're looking to really heal a, a long-term inflammation from their gut. And calendula is another wonderful herb that can go in those formulas. Okay, great. Love it. Um, so let's see. Renee, a different Renee, says, has a, uh, let's see, uh, several years ago, she had a vaginal hysterectomy due to, uh, men, let's see, men, ah, <laughs> fibroids, and I, my, my, my printout got messed up here, <laughs> dude, fibroids, and it uh, looks like it's kind of, well, I can't quite read that, sorry about that, Renee, um, I should look at this before I, again, before I, before I start. No. Uh, so anyway, so she had a vaginal hysterectomy and ever since that uh, procedure, I've had numbness in my thighs. The doctor said it would go away. Here I am seven years later and still there. It gets painful. Uh, if I stand too long or if it's cold, I don't even know how to look that up, but I felt it right away after the surgery and was never given any support in trying to find out what the problem was. And so have you ever heard of that? And what could it be? And is there anything she could do about it? So any help in that area? Mm. Well, I would say thoughts. that, um, it, you know, it's, especially because it was caused during, um, during surgery, mm -hmm. I would definitely look for a, um, a pelvic floor, um, physical therapist. They are out there. I don't know if she lives in a really rural area or mm -hmm. an urban area, but um, but look around. I mean, most physical therapists don't work with the pelvic floor, but there are um, those who do, mm -hmm. and that could be a helpful thing. Mm. Uh, and and then I think the other thing would be really increasing the circulation in that area, particularly through hip movement. So things like belly dancing and um, hula hooping can be can be very helpful to to kind of help move those, or just dancing in general. But you know, thinking about moving your hips to to increase the circulation would be my best thought to um, to helping with that numbness. But it, it is sounds really difficult, and I and I do wonder if there was a, you know a nerve or or something else that might have been um, damaged during right. the surgery. Right. And uh, I, I hope Renee has some luck. And I think being healthy and using nerve tonics and good herbs is always going to be. Um, a good bet and the, the you know the worst case scenario if you do some of those wonderful herbs is uh that you're just going to be healthier um it may not help the numbness but it will help you and it may help you just be more resilient to it and uh help it not to bother you so much okay um karen was uh about questions about treating and preventing of uh, vaginal yeast infections in children. She has an eight-year-old granddaughter, has recurrent problems with itchiness, especially after antibiotics for strep recently. She has divorced parents, goes back and forth a lot. So easy treatments for both parents, uh, you know, that they could both do would be great. So what do you say? Well, I'd want to make sure first, obviously she's working with, a, you know, a doctor and so on, but making sure she knows to work from front to back. I mean, that's just a really basic place to start with uh, with children. And so the the vaginal yeast infections, um, you know, especially with antibiotics, it can be really tricky. Mm. So I would want to make sure, you know, hygiene was good and also that there was some good air in that area of her body. So she definitely making sure that she's sleeping without any underwear on mm. Um, mm. would be key and that her underwear was all cotton. So some practical things first. Um, I, you know, I would probably try to, uh, you, yeast love living where it's um, kind of sweet and uh, energetically a little cool. They like, of course, um, physical warmth, but energetically a little cool or sweet. And so I would think about kind of warming and spicing up the body. Now, I know that eight-year-olds aren't always into warming and spicing, but I think as much as um, warm aromatic things can be added to her diet, so, you know, things like um, applesauce with a whole bunch of cinnamon and maybe some ginger or cloves or something added to it or um, some stewed fruits with a lot of warm things in them, I, 
really like stewed fruits as a um, prebiotic. Mm -hmm. And then um, adding those probiotics into her diet, of course, uh, either in a supplement form, preferably in a supplement form if she's actually had um, antibiotics. Because they, you know, they impact your your flora for a long time, and, and that includes your vaginal flora. Mm-hmm. So uh, she could use a little bit of a something like a calendula um, ointment, so a strong calendula ointment. And if she wanted to use that, she'd use so a salve that would be a strong calendula salve to take that, and maybe even add a little bit of um, probiotic for a week or so. So sprinkling a little bit of that probiotic powder from the capsules in that and then using that vaginally, um, that would be okay to use that. But in general, um, you know, with little girls, we don't do so much as far as like douching and sits baths can be hard. But if she wants, if she's willing to sit in the bathtub, I would um, certainly pour in a, a big pot of um, like yarrow and calendula infusion into a bathtub and, uh, and have her sit in that. Or if she's willing to sit in a sits bath, Um, make that fun, Mm -hmm. then that would be great to do yarrow and calendula infusions. But I know that, I mean, that's really getting complicated for those parents to to be making those. I think the the thing is, is that um, they're recurrent, but a lot of it might be that that it hasn't just, hasn't completely gone away. So, you know, if, if if you can give it a week or so of really intensely trying to work with it, um, otherwise I would start with those dietary things, trying to remove some of the, sh- the sweetness and sugar mm-hmm. and, um, add some of those aromatics and spices and, uh, and then those probiotics. Yeah. And that's got it. I mean, this probably with kids too, and they're so sensitive to so many things. There's probably so many, so many levels of things going on there, especially having to go back and forth between parents and everything. It's just, that's tough. Um, so thank you. You know what, Bevan, that was just absolutely, I think, I think this, this, is the record for the most questions I've ever asked an herbalist with amazing, <laughs> simple and concise answers. I mean, this is just like, yeah, you have hold the world, the Ermenta radio world record for the most questions answered in a, <laughs> it's like a marathon <laughs> here. Bad, actually, <laughs> like, well, maybe, maybe I should have spent more time with them and, and, uh, but, uh, hopefully, I gave some answers that people can use. Oh yeah, definitely. And that was like, apparently it's like half the, half the question. So I think, uh, we'll have to have you back sometime for sure. Cause it's like, uh, we'll have to have like a Bevin and ask Bevin show. <laughs> we'll just, we'll have you in the clinic at work. We'll just tap in Skype, you know, right in there. We'll just have the video or, you know what, why don't we just have a video feed up in your clinic? You know, that people can just go and, and uh, watch you working. <laughs> You could just constantly be hooked into my mobile phone and, and asking me questions day and night, you know, <laughs> never stop. It never, could, never ends. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's awesome. Um, let's see. And, and, uh, you know, do you, do you have any advice, um, for people who, I mean, cause a lot of these questions were a lot of chronic things. Um, how people can find a, maybe a consultant or some way helping in their area. Cause, Gosh, it's one thing if you live in the D.C. area and I can pop in and see you or you live near Bastyr University near me. But, um, but you know, is there, do you have any, like, ideas? Like if someone says, hey, you know, like you should see someone. What, with people with uh, limited options, what, um, what, are, what are ways people can, can maybe find a consultant or somebody like you to get some answers from for chronic things? I think you, if you have a health food store or something, mm-hmm. you can always ask around. Mm-hmm. There, I also think you can go onto the American Herbalist Guild website, which Excellent. has some herbalists. Um, you, you plugging into your community. If you're a mom, the um, mothering.com, or if you're a dad, but mothering.com is a great kind of natural health mm-hmm. website, and uh, and and just asking around and being being creative. Even asking an herbalist in another part of the country. I mean, people ask me all the time. Although I'm not saying everybody should ask me this, but you know, do you know somebody in you know here or there or mm-hmm. so on? And then there are herbalists that do work over Skype or um, from afar. It's certainly not ideal, but you know, if that's if that's what you need, it can it can work really well. Right, right, great. And um, you know, do you have any? How can people find out about like any upcoming classes or? conferences and places you're teaching would they just go to bevanclair.com or do you have any you want to tell people now about or anything happening so well bevanclair.com we're we're working on that right now mm-hmm. we're kind of revising that um so there isn't anything online specifically but uh 
but there's always, you know, those herb conferences that are out there that you can find out about. Um, you know, I, I'm excited this year about the Traditions Conference out in um, the Southwest in the fall and, uh, and the American Herbalist Guild, which will be up in um, Pennsylvania near West Virginia this year, also oh. in the fall. So there's lots of, uh, those herb conferences are really, you know, super fun depending on where you live. And they're, they're pretty spread around the country. I think it's, I would encourage anyone who's interested in herbs to just try to find their community. And once you find people, then those doors start to open. So uh, do look around and, and see what you can find out there. There's, there's pretty much herbalists everywhere, uh, at least in my experience, and people are just so interested in this. Thank you. So, Bev and Claire, thanks so much for being on Herb Mentor Radio and um, really appreciate it. And, again, if you want to find out about the clinic, uh, the free clinic, or I uh, want to check out where Bevin teaches and runs a clinic, uh, you can go to taitai.edu. So thanks so much, Bevin, for spending time with us today. Great. Thank you so much, John. Herb Mentor Radio on HerbMentor.com is a production of LearningHerbs.com. Visit LearningHerbs.com for free herbal lessons, including Herb Mentor News, Home Remedy Secrets, and Supermarket Herbalism. You'll also find the Herbal Medicine Making Kit and our board game Wildcraft. Herb Mentor Radio, copyright LearningHerbs.com, all rights reserved. Thanks so much for listening.